Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to our soul. It seems like it's been forever since we talked to Mason only two weeks ago, but um, we were back, me and Terry. What's up, Terry? Woo! I, I am getting ready to go on vacation. So I'm I'm really pretty thrilled, and I know our listeners are gonna gonna want to listen um, in real close because we're gonna be recording actually two sessions today. So you will get to hear part one today and part two later in the month because mm-hmm. I'm gonna be away and like unreachable for about two weeks, and which it's is gonna be lovely. I mean, it's highly possible. It's actually probably preferable for for many people. Um, (laughs) But this is how we decided to do this. So y'all are stuck (laughs) along the way with our choices. So, yeah. How's how's that for pro-choice? We're pro our choices. (laughs) No, we're we're actually pro everybody's choices, right? Like that's that's where we are. So yeah. Speaking speaking of uh, pro everybody's choices, um, I am really really pro um, all things Kelly and what Kelly has been able to do. Kelly, can you like talk about the event? The amazing, amazing event that you were able to put on um, 150 Days of Injustice, Revitalize Black Lives. Like, I didn't get to come, but I was really, really excited. I got to see everything kind of unfold and the community transformation that happened through that. Um, I'm I'm really excited and pumped about those choices. Can, can you give us, like, a rundown of that event, how it happened how it came together yeah yeah um so on august 1st which was the day before my birthday um we gathered at goodell park for uh 150 days of injustice revitalize black lives and it was really like a whirlwind of an event um it was crazy like we we spent about a month planning it and um to see it actually come together was pretty pretty weird and like in a good way though um so we i'll just like tell you some fun things that go on when you plan an event um so we actually um had thought that there was going to be rain and so we had prepared about the day before we put a call out on facebook um for people to bring like pop-up tents and stuff um for the rain and so um we were able to get like I think like 10 pop-up tents that we um, put up around this um, shelter house that we were using for our DJ. And it was crazy because the rain that was expected to start at 11 a.m. right at the beginning of our start time held off until I said the last words of the entire program. It was, I mean, it felt to me like a sign that it was God-ordained because God held off the rain until after... Um, you know, the work had been done, but, um, it was a really good time. So, um, kind of how the, how the event went, we started off with a, um, meditation and grounding from Christine at Root. Um, and she did a really great job of helping us find our breath and, um, kind of really ground ourselves, which I think is something that's like really, uh, undervalued in a lot of spaces. So, um, I know it's been a lot of 
a part of the work that we've been doing, especially with the protests and with COVID. Um, but that was something that was really important to start and end with grounding. Absolutely. And so we have been and in the, just yeah. for our listeners who um, aren't familiar with Root, Root is Restoring Our Own Through Transformation. It's a local reproductive justice organization that does amazing work and the the grounding process that um, we like to to participate in whenever we get a group together that's literally the heart and soul of roots work they they keep people grounded and literally rooted in the work in the community so yeah yeah it's good stuff yeah and i had actually so me and christine had um, been a part of the same organizing training last summer and so I remembered that um, she had kind of stepped up and helped with the the grounding um, during that training. And so when we were looking for someone to help with meditations and I was talking to Elena, um, she had recommended Christine. And so I was like, that's perfect because I already know um, that this is really important, um, even outside of her work with um, Root. But um yeah, so we, we, we thought it was really important to start with that, and so um, we did that, and then we also had a DJ who was there all day, which was really great, and she her job was just kind of to keep the vibe going, um, and she did a really good job, you know, um, because of the rain and um, some changes of plans, because, you know, that's what happens when you put an event on, nothing ever goes on schedule, Um we were able to have more time to connect with other people and also to just like jam out to what was playing. There was at one point we were supposed to have a session, but I wanted to sing Love on Top by Beyonce before the session because she started playing it. So um, we just waited a little bit longer. Um, But yeah, so we had um, Christine starting with the meditation and then we did lunch so we had willoughby's and it was very good and um some of the leftover food we were able to just give to some other people in the community who wanted it or needed it um and then after that i was able to have a conversation with aramis from the people's justice project and so we talked a little bit about like how um there's like this ever going or this always present struggle um that we are going through as people who have been marginalized and like who live in a a white supremacist society as black people who live in a white supremacist society we are always consistently struggling um but then with the constant struggle we're also constantly having um wins that are you know helping us move towards um a better future and more liberation for black people Um, so it was a really great conversation with him, um, talking about like how you need to have like your people with you, have the people that you can like take your mask off with, um, and how that's so important to be able to sustain the movement. Uh, yeah. Take, take your mask off, not, not your COVID mask, but like your, your, like your, you know, professional put together, like hide from... Especially I, as organizers, like, there's, like, one um, way that you have to... It's not even... It's not like anybody tells you you have to be this way in front of people. Though, like, societally, it's, like, an undertone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, there's, like, this this way that you feel you must act in front of other people. As if, like, nothing can hurt you. As if you are infinitely strong. As if you are, you know, you know exactly what you're doing. Um, 
but what's really important is you have to have some people to take that take that mask off with but then you right. keep your covid mask on that's right and i i always think of um masks you know the emotional social psychosocial mask uh theory as you know this two-part thing it gives first off a covering for all your flaws you're supposed to hide all your flaws from everybody and it then gives you a second identity that is performative as opposed to your real identity and i you know as a as a queer person um my understanding of uh masking or closeting behavior is you know all about how sometimes that is necessary in people's lives but ultimately it is not life-giving if that's the only way that you live in the world you know you have to be able to take that that performative mask off and uh, you know it was great to get to hear the reflections from Aramis and People's Justice Project around the conversation you were able to have because I, I think there are definite parallels it's it's a distinct and different struggle you know being um being black in a white supremacist society in a white supremacist global experience you know global colonialism has created a a white supremacy that is um almost universalized in in the spaces and places that we we exist in the world um how in the world uh that struggle keeps going when there are a lot of places you can't take your mask off at i i think that's that's the profound heart of certainly people's justice project but also you know the rest of our organizations that are pursuing collective liberation it's about liberating everybody um and and that begins with that struggle for black lives and the the hope that we had had around creating this event is not only to educate the people who have been um trying to become a part of the work and who have been trying to um you know join the um struggle it, so it was that, but also a place where um, those who have been like on the front lines in the the last like in their recent history of the last like couple months, um, we wanted to give a chance for them to take a break and they don't have to do the education portion. Um, but we've created this space where they can both receive rest and other people can be educated. So like their work is not being um, is not ending um, for that period of time, but rather is being picked up by someone else. I think that's something that we mentioned. Uh, I pretty much, I took all of last week off um, from Ohio work, CRC work, and I honestly, like, I did not think about anything at all. I still have a mm -hmm. bunch of other things I need to do to kind of wrap up um, that event. But um, I think one thing that we talked about there was, like, this idea of, like, when, uh, and, and maybe we didn't, I don't know. <laughs> one thing I've talked about recently with somebody is this idea of, um, when one person actually now i remember so chris davies uh who we just had a teach-in with last week um she had written a um meditation that i led a couple weeks ago on our facebook live and in it there i think there was a portion about like when when one person rests another person picks it up and while one person is picking it up another person is resting so it's this constant process of like people people taking a break and people picking it up and so i kind of um when when thinking about this event and when creating this event i wanted to um 
kind of make that space of like dropping it off and picking it up you know kind of like a relay race absolutely and and the idea that within community we don't have to carry this burden alone we certainly you know strive and we struggle and and we put forth you know the effort that we have but none of the effort that we put forward is put forward in isolation or uh, just for that single purpose. It carries the weight for other people to be able to take that time to breathe, take that time to, to have time out. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's pretty profound, the, the idea within uh, many of our religious traditions of rest uh, the idea of Sabbath in, uh, you know, Jewish tradition and also uh, it's been somewhat appropriated in the Christian tradition. The idea of, you know, a, a regulated rest or an idea of uh, not having a responsibility for a period, you know, giving giving yourself the gift of, of absence of work. Um those are profound and essential spiritual truths that we have to live out in the movement. Um, and and I think we're finding right now, particularly in the, the movement for Black Lives and certainly uh, its expression in Columbus, that rest is a necessary part of the work. It's not like we do the work and then we rest and we feel guilty when we're resting because we're not doing the work. Well, Part of the work is resting. Part of the work is rejuvenating. Part of the work is preparing to stay engaged in the struggle. And, uh, you know, that's why I love the the uh, label of the event as revitalize black lives, right? It's revitalization. It's new life. It's maintaining and sustaining that life and that movement that's going to carry us forward. Because um, so many people have been talking recently about uh, Black Lives Matter, and they're like, "Well, you know, I mean, it it was a it was a good movement while it lasted, while it and lasted. you know, there were things going on. Oh, there, yeah, there there are people who really think like this is over, and folk don't understand. Uh, just because people are not in the streets in the same way that they were, does not mean that they are not moving the grassroots change." in just as effective a way you know there there's a real uh difference in in most uh pedagogy between protest and grassroots uh, activism and a more electoral theory of change or you know i'm for lack of a, a better terminology i'm going to say white liberal change right like oh we got to form a committee and we got to get some people together and we got to you know convince people and persuade people and we got to use the right language and we got to say the right things and we got to be nice about it right like all of that stuff is not this movement this movement is the movement of we're going to be honest yeah. we're going to be real honest we're going to be real blunt and we are not taking whatever you offer if what you offer is not what we seek we're not going to buy it and we're not going to buy into it and we're not going to let it quench our fire yeah. and you know yeah, we're not going to settle I'm, for i'm ready for that like second class we're going to um right you know work to create the the future that we deserve um when you were talking, something that I was reminded of is we had this conversation about the difference between an activist and an organizer. And um, it kind of, I in my mind, fits around this idea of, like, um, delegation and, like, knowing when to rest. And um, 
so what I've learned, and I think what um, uh, Aramis would agree with, but what I've learned is that like the organizer is not is not the leader themselves. They are the organizer of the people. Like the organizer um, knows the people that they are working with to a point that they can put them in a place where their skills and abilities are best used. So, for example, an organizer, I mean, they could be the person speaking in front of everyone, but they could also be the person that um, is uh, letting a, like, someone who's a good public speaker, letting, um, letting them speak instead and um, giving them that platform to use their voice so that... Um, it's not always the same person coming forward, you know? So, um, like, a community organizer knows the skills and abilities of the community that they are organizing to the point that they can put people in the places that they are best fit. Similar to, like, how when I say I'm organizing my house, I'm putting things where they belong, where they make the most sense to be there. Um, And I think often people think that an organizer is just, like, the person who... Uh, is always on the the bullhorn at the be- at the front of protests or um, always I don't know always the one in the front and that can be true but not necessarily I think the more important job of the organizer is to to put people where they best are um, fit to move the whole movement forward um, and that's right. that's something right. we talked and a little I- bit about because there are um, people who you know, are just starting in wanting to be involved with movement work. And so they um, may, like, see themselves as organizers, but, like, that kind of work also requires some amount of, like, training and experience um, before you really become one, if that makes sense. Right, right. And I I think part of the process around, around organizing is that you become responsible not just for what the movement is doing but for where the movement is going you know you you become responsible for kind of the long-term strategic health of um, uh, the movement and its goals Um, and to be able to listen to your people and to and to hear um, what what the needs are in that moment and to sense you know when is the time to press deeper when is the time to uh, not relax, but you know, maybe pause, um, celebrate uh, in that moment where you are. Uh, it's a, it's a more of an art, mm-hmm. really, than yeah, anything. Yeah, for sure. And it, it, you know, it takes training and it takes, um, you know, a lot of foresight and um, an understanding of the situation that you're in. That's why I have such a deep respect for organizers that have been um, doing the work here for longer than I have, who know more than I do, um, and that they're willing to teach me how to be better, um, because there's so much that goes into that. And that kind of goes, going back to, like, the difference between, like, community organizing and, uh, electoral politics, like, um, you know, there, what is, there's, like, Ecclesiastes has like this whole thing where it's like there is a time and a place for everything a time to live a time to die um I was mimicking the voice of like I used to when I was a kid I would like um 
listened to the Bible on audio and the guy who read Ecclesiastes was super boring. <laughs> I'm not saying that Ecclesiastes is boring, but the guy who read it was definitely boring. Anyway, <laughs> but I, I remember that. And so when I think about how there's a time and a space for everything, um, I think of Ecclesiastes. But anyway, um, so there there's a time and a space for um, electoral politics, but there's also a time and a space for community organizing. And I personally think that community organizing is more important and more effective um, than electoral politics can be. Like, it's really important that we get people in office that will do things that to um, support us as, like, leaders. But also, uh, I, and I would even say this of myself, if I was a, like, a politician or a representative, um, I wouldn't even trust myself to stick to the rules that I, or the rules, the um, goals that I set before going into office because I think like once you're in office it kind of goes to your head and so you need to have the people putting pressure on you and telling you what they want um, or else you're just going to you know start doing things that fit into the institution that does not serve the people and you know we don't want that. Well and I, I, I think part of the struggle is that in any organization I you know as a pastor I I would be remiss if I didn't say it it is Ecclesiastes chapter okay. 3 right <laughs> gets somewhere us, in there gets us uh, and and there's also a song from the birds right that you know to everything turn 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 there is a season yeah. right I I think that's a great model though for for this division between this natural division between protest politics and electoral politics protest and grassroots theory of change and electoral theories of change that yeah there's a time and a place for everything and as a pastor i i see any operation any organization any action within a congregation or any other uh group you know whether you want to uh, look at a, a community development group uh school system um uh, process government whatever there are two distinct kinds of energy that have to go into work, right? There is maintenance energy and there's transformation energy. You have to have maintenance energy just to keep doing what we're doing, how we've been doing it. Like, we've always done it that way before. Those are the favorite words in the church, right? I, I know most uh, religious organizations, you know, uh, we've always done it that way before or we've never done it that way before. You know, people clutching their pearls and having all kinds of issues about little things, right? Um, but that that energy, that maintenance energy is just kind of there. And you can get completely consumed in maintenance energy. When you want to change something, you have to keep doing what you've been doing and at the same time put more energy in to that system. And that more energy part is the transformational energy, right? And for me, when I look at electoral politics, so much of our electoral politics, especially in the state of Ohio, if we look at uh, you know regional and state politics, so much of our, our political energy is around people just trying to do the same thing we've always done. Well, you know, if we would just get more votes than the other people, then we would be able to write the rules and we'd be able to do this and we'd be able to do that. But they're not interested really in long term making a lot of progress. They're just trying to fight and keep the the status quo 
so that the other side doesn't push back too far. So both sides push against the middle. It, it moves, you know, it's a game of inches. There's not a lot of transformation there. If you want a fundamental change, a fundamental transformation, you don't want to start with an institutional process. You want to start with an alternative process or a personal transformation process. You know, it's this movement ecology stuff they're starting to talk about. You know, you have institutions, you have alternatives, you have uh, personal transformation. Institutions aren't interested in change. Institutions and people who get elected are primarily interested in maintaining the institution and getting reelected. So the movement has to move those people and those institutions. And the way that you do that is by putting a little bit of what I call loving pressure on people. You know, we, we put a little loving pressure on our friends, little adversarial pressure on the people who outright, uh, you know, oppose the agenda of the people. And you create an environment, you create an ecology where it's absolutely untenable to maintain the status quo. We, we've we done that now, I, I think, across the nation. We're starting to see that when we talk about police. The culture of policing is to the point that um, folk used to not even talk about uh, the police as a, a problem culture or as a, a line item that needs to be uh, funded differently. Now we're having conversations where people are beginning to get real defensive about police, real defensive about police budgets, real defensive about racism and police. I, I don't know if you got to see in the dispatch here about five days ago, um, there was a community conversation with some retired police chiefs in Columbus. I wanna, I wanna just read from this. This is um, our, our good friend Bethany Bruner over at the Columbus Dispatch. Um, on August 5th, she had this article where uh, former chiefs, you know, former chief uh, Kim Jacobs, former chief Walter uh, Distelsweig, I think is the way you pronounce it. Not quite sure. Lots of, uh, lots of vowels in that name. <laughs> and uh, Deputy Chief John Rockwell met together and they, they had some interesting things to share, their, their perspectives when you start talking about um, racism in the police force. Um, one in particular, as they're talking along, they're, they're, they're concerned mainly, obviously, as, as former um, you know, police staff, they're concerned with what they see as uh, kind of the demonization of uh, police officers. But they took it so far to the point of making this statement. Rockwell made this statement. Um, there is not systemic racism in the Columbus Division of Police. It's not systemic racism at all in the police system. Um, which I find interesting because at least we're getting our tone deafness out there so people can look at it, right? Because, like, the entire concept of a police force is rooted in two elemental histories. Primarily, uh, slave patrols evolved eventually into police forces and property guards that were paid to protect private property from you know, so-called ne'er-do-wells. You know, this is, two, you know, 200, 150 years ago. Local communities did not have a police force like we think of until they needed a force of people to 
protect wealthy people's stuff and to go hunt down black people, people of color, who were misbehaving and who were out of the norm. How in the world you can say that that system did not uh, have rooted in itself systemic racism or that, you know, police coming out of that, you know, don't have a problem with systemic racism. I don't know, but these people genuinely believe that delusion. Go Um, go ahead. I was going to say there's there's this podcast that I've been listening to lately. Um, I think I might have mentioned this on here. Um, It's... It's called The Land That Never Has Been Yet. It's by um, uh, Scene on Radio. That's S-C-E-N-E on radio um, by the Center for Documentary Studies. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm not I'm advertising for them. <laughs> uh, but they they had this series about how um, the entire American government, America as a concept, has been based in capitalism and then in racism as well, and always on the exploitation of um, black people and other people of color, um, especially indigenous people. Uh, And I just, like, I guess... I hate to say this. Um, At some some level, I have... um, Like, it feels uh, disingenuous to say this, I should say. I don't hate it. Um, but on some level, I have a, a lot of understanding for those people who don't recognize their own systemic racism, uh, because I don't know that, like, I'm not even going to say if, but when I am, um, playing into the, uh, r- white supremacist racist system that we all live and breathe in, I don't know that I can recognize that myself. Like, I can say that I'm as woke as I want to be, but, like, I don't know if I don't have people who, if I don't have people who are willing to call me out on that level, which I'm thankful that I do, um, if I don't have the resources um, constantly around me, which is not to say that they don't have the resources available to them, but that they may not be seeking them out. If, if I didn't have all these things telling me that I'm living into the white supremacist and capitalist society that we live in, um, then I may not see the effects of racism that I am playing out. Um, And that just, like, there's a lot of conversation about, like, how, or not conversation, but there's a lot of talk. Well, no, yeah, talk. Um, There's a lot of talk about how people need to be having hard conversations with their family members and people because, like, that may be the only person who is willingly, like, calling people out on their stuff <laughs> that's the, the, the only opportunity Absolutely. of um people calling them out on their um white supremacy and if you don't have someone calling it, you out you may never see it like right it it is time to call out uncle john mm-hmm. at the thanksgiving yeah. table right it is time to let your racist cousins know that that ain't right mm-hmm. no more it wasn't right before but it sure ain't yeah. right now it's time to stop being so nice about the sin of systemic racism that is literally killing people in this nation. I don't know if this is the same when you went to MTSO, but um, in one of my first classes, my first year, um, we had to read this article thing called, like, The Ethic of Nice. Um, 
and mm-hmm. it talked about like how like being nice is not like going to make people any better or like let like being nice is just going to continue to let people um live into um these ways that they may not even recognize that they're being terrible and like that is not and I've had to struggle with this myself, but, like, that's not, not telling someone that is not showing them grace. It's not helping them be a better person. Uh, it's not, like, you may be avoiding a conflict, but, like, down the road, like, it's, it's not going to be any better and they're going to continue to be bad. (laughs) Um, but this is, like, the kind of situation where, um, I want to encourage our white listeners to be the people to bring that up because, as a black people and like people of color and um other folks who are constantly um being oppressed by the system like it is not it should not be our job to uh to call out your racist uncle um and yeah so that that shouldn't be our job and so i would call on our white listeners to be willing to have those tough conversations because you're not having to I mean, you may you may see it in some way, but you're not having to live with it the same way that we are. Um. Right. And and the danger, the danger in a system of a person of color, of a black person or or, you know, a person of, of any color calling out the racism that is happening at the hands of a white person is pure power differential and you know white folk i in a lot of my work with the church i try to remind people you know white privilege is a real thing and it means you have to have white stewardship too that you need to steward your white privilege and that means not sitting on your rear end when you see work that needs to be done that cannot be done safely by people who don't look like you you know, there there are definitely, uh, you know, more times than not, white folk need to be quiet and listen and allow other people's voices to take up space. But it's in those moments when white folk really don't want to say anything because it's awkward and they want to be nice. Those are the moments you need to speak. Uh, dear, dear um, former bishop of the Methodist Church who recently passed away, uh, Reverend Judith Craig, was a fantastic church leadership uh, professor. And the first sermon that I heard her preach uh, at seminary, when I was at seminary, was entitled, uh, Being Nice Ain't Holy. <laughs> and I I found such deep joy in that because she was really clear. She said, you know, as a bishop in the church, as the third ever ordained woman bishop in the world... Uh, of the modern time, right? Obviously, you know, ancient bishops, but, you know, after we decided that only men could hold that job, you know, she's the third person ordained to that office in the world, right? Um, she said, I had a lot of people who did not like my decisions simply because of my gender. She said, and I had to get over the fact that I just wasn't going to get some people to like me. And she said, and eventually I realized I'm never going to get anybody to like me because people are either going to like you or not like you, and that's not your concern. Your concern has to be about people's development, not about their happiness. 
And you can't spend time worrying about being nice when people are actively damaging themselves and damaging the spiritual and physical health of the world. And, I, you know, that, that's where it is right now. We, we have to get healthy. It doesn't matter if we're nice, right? Uncle John and everybody else, it, you know, we got to hold ourselves accountable to that yeah. ethic. We got to hold ourselves accountable. And that kind of reminds me also of like going back to the question that we were talking about earlier, um, like the, the difference between like electoral and like grassroots change. Um, I think people, especially the people who are like, uh, talking badly about the protests the people who don't like the protests they may see the protests as just not being nice so like to them being nice is like doing your elect electoral politics and like voting for the people you want to vote for and then when they don't get in uh you just deal with it i guess but then uh not being nice because we're being loud and we're being upfront and we're not like just letting things fly um, is doing these protests and being loud and being, um, upfront about, like, the things that are hurting us, because we're not, like you said, we're not being healthy. The system is not healthy for everyone, and so we have seen that we need to confront it. I feel like over the last few years, I've been talking a lot about this idea of, um, actually, I, I think it's been, like, probably at least four years that I've used this metaphor for different things. But um, I've talked about this idea of, um, say you cut your leg open and you, it, it gets, it's a deep cut. It's one that needs stitches, right? So there, there are a few options of what you could do here. You could go, you can, um, or, and let's, and let's also say that it gets infected. So there are a few options you can have here. You can go to the doctor, you can get the doctor to like, you know, take out the infection and, um, you know, it would be a very painful process, probably surgery. And then they sew you up and then you actually move on and you're better. You're different, but you're better than you were before. Or the other option is you could slap a bandaid on there. And I guess when that doesn't work, you just deal with it. I don't know, but you still have that infection there and it's still going to continue to harm you as you do things like the way you always have been. Um, it's not going to do you any better. Actually, for a more specific example, um, I tore my ACL. And so the options were I could, I could have um, just lived with my, my torn ACL and that wouldn't have been a big deal. Um, I would have had to get my knee replaced when I was 40, which is like really young for a knee replacement. Um, or I could just get the ACL surgery now, which was painful and like required lots of rehab. But in the end, the better decision <laughs> is to just go ahead and get the surgery. Like it's painful, it's hard, and it's not as like, you know, as nice. Right. But uh, in, the, in the end, you can end up with something that was, is better and works for you and works for everyone um, and leads to like a healthier, community as representative as represented by my body <laughs> absolutely and i yeah I, I think we're at a place where we have to acknowledge it's not the season no. for nice it is not the season for mm -mm. band-aids it's the season for transformational change yeah. well i i think we're we're about yeah. at time i didn't even end up talking about uh, the whole event we, but um we did end up we right. had you know protest education and um 
another grounding, which if you want to see some of the protest education stuff, I think we still have it up on our event page, which you may be able to search for. But uh, yeah, so it was a it was a really great event and uh, it's really good talking to you about these these different ways of change. So. And to keep updated on all the amazing stuff that comes out of Ohio RCRC, just search Ohio Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice on Facebook. Like us on Facebook, like us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, take a look at OhioRCRC.org. You can find all the podcast episodes that you may have missed or uh, all of your favorite podcast episodes, because of course you've watched all of them, uh, along with our blog and lots of other information. Again, that's OhioRCRC.org. Thanks for listening, everybody.